So my title this morning, I don't know if it's up there. Oh yeah, look at that, eh? You like that? Bad stuff that happens in the church. Nothing. (laughs) I'm not talking about exploding diapers in the nursery either, by the way, or uh, puke all over the floor of the preschool room, or even exploding Dr. Pepper and uh, chocolate milk on the carpet up here. All that is bad stuff. It's not what I'm talking about. That, that all pales in comparison to the real bad stuff that happens in the church. And we're going to talk about some of that this morning. So if you've been following along, we're in this series of, in 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians 11 this morning. It's gospel what? Gospel clarity amidst cultural confusion. Right, that's where we've been at. So um, the whole idea, again, of how the, the Bible, the gospel, the good news of Jesus brings absolute clarity in our lives amidst a culture that is confused on so many levels. And so allowing the Holy Spirit to shape what the Lord wants to do in us. And so we're going to be in the back half of chapter 11 this morning. Um, it's the first of the month, so we've been following a plan of doing communion um, during the first part of every, uh, the first Sunday of every month. And, and so we're going to be in that section in 1 Corinthians 11 this morning that the heading of your Bible probably will say the Lord's Supper or something like that. And so if you're like, okay, the Lord's Supper, bad stuff that happens in the church, how, how does that relate? So if you, if you think that might be a little bit of a strange correlation, um, this text is about the Lord's Supper, but it's also a lot more than just that. And, and so we're going to unpack that a little bit. So if you have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen, but we're going to read 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 32. Paul says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God, and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we have judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So, you might hear that and you go, how do we all make sense of that? And what is going on here in Corinth? And what is Paul really getting at? And what's he addressing? And so, the issues that Paul is addressing here, they're around the Lord's Supper, if you will. But the meal issues that he's talking about were deeper symptoms of a problem in the church. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to talk about bad stuff that happens in the church. Then we're going to talk about the rebuke and the warning that Paul lays out there. And then we're going to end with the solution. We're going to end with looking at God's provision for us, because there is a solution. So what was happening in Corinth was bad. It, it, what, what can happen in the church today can be equally as bad condoning behavior that hurts others, pretending that it's not a big deal. And Paul, when he saw this happening and he heard of it, that didn't sit well with him. And he's like, I'm, I'm going to talk about this. And again, like so many things in Corinthians, he could have just sort of just swept it under the rug, the stuff he heard of and went, well, you know, because there was stuff happening in the church. But he's like, no, no, we're going we're gonna to talk about this. And so the specific example that Paul addresses here was evidence of a deeper systematic problem, if you will, amongst the people. Now, in, in understanding this, church culture back then was a bit different than church culture is today. They would get together regularly. They were coming together for these meals. And they would eat these, these meals together, these big feasts, if you will. And they would be intentional about having the Lord's Supper during these times together. And so it was kind of like a bring and share potluck, if you will, combined with communion. It's a good plan for fellowship, right? It's, I mean, when you look at it on the surface, you go, that's a good plan. But what was transpiring in Corinth was different. It, they were becoming similar to the culture around them, to what was happening in the culture. People of differing income levels coming, not sharing food. They were creating, if you will, in the church, the haves and the have-nots. And they didn't care. It, they were just like, yeah, whatever, big deal. And then there was people coming as part of this and, and sort of becoming like the feasts that were happening in Corinth. They were just coming and it was like a big wild party and they were getting drunk. And Paul hears this and he says, like, that's what goes on in the culture. That, that's, not, that's not what's supposed to be happening in the church. So this, these wild parties with food and lots of drinking had become sort of the norm in the church, made its way into church life. Now, combining fellowship with church life, that's great. That's good, right? Gospel calls us to live integrated lives. We don't, we don't do one thing Friday night, Saturday night, and then come in and put on a different face on Sunday. Right? That, that's not what we do. There, that's not the gospel transforming every part of our lives. That's 
living disintegrated, compartmentalized, what, were, what word do you want to use? And, and Paul, he'd been, he's unpacking this for the Corinthians because just prior to this, we had, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago, of doing all things to the glory of God. And so he's fitting this within that. All things in life. There's nothing that doesn't touch your life when it comes to the gospel. All things are aimed at the glory of God, which is, and I'm sure, like, that is a revolutionary thought change in our lives. All things to the glory of God. It really does change how you look at everything and how you live. But here's where the ongoing challenge is is for all of us. Because we have the temptation in the church to, and we almost create another layer of this where we put on masks and identities that don't align with where we're really living and what's really going on. And, and yet the church should be or supposed to be the place where we're the most open, where we can actually come and receive help and we can be real and we can be honest and transparent. We can be the least fake in inviting others and ourselves to be to be real. What's, like, what's really going on inside of me? What's really going on inside of my life? Not putting on, you know, nice clothes and trying to make it look like I'm just, everything's peachy, if it's not. We're not meant to live as the world does within the church. And so the body is to be this place of, of profound care and openness. That wasn't happening in Corinth. Divisions were in the church very clearly and pronounced. And it was ego-driven, showing off their affluence, getting their identity from wealth and societal influence, all of it really being driven, if you will, by feeling good at the expense of others. You think about those in the church there that didn't have and, and the position that they were being put in by the others in the church and how that was making them feel. And Paul doesn't really dig into that, but you can imagine the, the hurt and the pain that was transpiring in the church because of this. It's, it's bad stuff in the church. And so Paul, he confronts these attitudes and, and behavior straight on. He basically says to them, if you want to, to live selfishly like this, he's not saying, I don't want you to live like this, but if you're going to do this, well, then just go do it in your own homes. Don't, don't bring it into the body. But clearly, you know, throughout all of 1 Corinthians, what we see throughout the entire letter is there's this, this ebb and flow and, and theme of the, to be others focused. Paul is, is constantly redirecting the Corinthians back to that of, of this is not about you, this is about others. You, you live in Christ, your identity is in Christ. In fact, even in 1 Corinthians 1.10, right at the beginning of the letter, he actually talks about being united in the same mind. He's actually saying, like, you are to pursue a unity of thought. Now, now, how does that work itself out in a church 
of people with very different personalities, characteristics, backgrounds, influences. And he says, I, I would actually have you pursue a unity of mind. The only way that is remotely possible is if we are teachable and humble and willing to change views. That, that there's no other way otherwise. And so, regardless of the media propaganda that is all around us, and, and, it's, and it's pervasive and it's all over, you don't have to dig very deep to get into, to see that the way of our culture actually all around us is to foster pride, is actually to foster inequality, even though we preach the opposite, and we are preaching in our culture arrogance. It's about me. And, 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 and you don't have to dig deep at all to find that. And right now, right now in what's going on, right now in the current events in our country, we're seeing that all over. We're seeing pride. We're seeing arrogance. We're seeing inequality. Regardless of what the speaking points are, the reality of what we're seeing transpire is very different. And it's so, so, so opposite to the way of Jesus. And, and this is what Paul saw transpiring in Corinth as well. And so, like I said, the issues of what was happening at this common meal were symptoms of a deeper issue. And the, the same principle is true today. When that stuff is present, bad stuff happens in the church. Scripture says we're not to live as the world lives. So what, what is the impact if I'm not living the gospel in areas of my life and I'm bringing it into the church? What is the impact of that? Inconsistencies in our lives, living out of belief systems that are actually not biblical, from our families, from traditions, from our way of life, from cultural norms, and the list goes on. Ways that we are thinking and believing that we have that aren't necessarily formed and shaped by the word of God, but by a host of other influences. How many hours a year do you spend watching social media, online, and any number of streaming apps versus how much time you spend in the Word of God? Have you ever done that calculation? I haven't. <laughs> but I thought about that. That is a striking question to ask yourself because all of that is influencing how we think and what we, what's in our minds. And what it will do is it will lead us to hide, to be hiding, to be faking, to be carefully managing our image while betraying ourselves actually about what's really going on inside of me. We might feel actually that it's the only way that we keep ourselves safe. But is it? Is the best answer to run or to hide? Or is it to come into the light, to get stuff into the light, getting stuff into the open, receiving forgiveness, being cleansed. The promise in Ephesians 5, it says, is that the, the, the light of Christ 
will shine on you. The light of Christ will shine on you. And the fruit of this light, it says there in Ephesians 5, is found in all that is good and right and true. So, there's no falsehood there. Following the way of Jesus is revealed in his word. Everything, everything touched by the light of Christ. The light of Christ will shine on you as you get into the light. And as the light shines, everything is touched by this light. Because nothing in the light Everything in the light, sorry, is visible. It's made visible. So everything in the light, family, life, finances, decisions, minds being shaped by Scripture, all of it is Jesus functioning as Lord in our lives. An active function of Jesus as Lord. Are we pursuing this amongst us? Verse 22, he, Paul makes, he, he, he talks to the Corinthians, he uses this term, he says, he refers to them as the church of God. It's the same, he uses the same term uh, just uh, a little bit before in the end of chapter 10. It's a very significant name that he gives to the church. You are the church of God. And it's interesting, when you go back to chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians, he's, he talks there about how we're God's field, God's building, God's fellow workers, God's temple. So there's all these, you're all these things. He says, you are the church of God. You think about all the ways what he calls us as the body. This is who the church, this is who those of us who make up the local body, this is who we are called to be. We are the church of God. There's at least a couple implications here for us out of this that I would see that we would reject any inclination to make ourselves look better or feel better by putting down others. That we would just reject any subtle temptation to do that. Because it's actually demonic when we do that. It's pride. Second implication is that we don't live for ourselves. Church is not about consuming. It's, It's being part of fellowship, generous contributions on every level to the life of the church. We are, we are part of this. It's, it's part of who we are. And so twice in verses 27, sorry, verse 17 to 22 there, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to commend you for your willingness to allow these, these ego-driven things in the church. I'm not going to commend you for letting that happen, for these divisions that, are, that have been going on. And, and he says that because it's the very purpose of the Lord's Supper to remind them, remind us of the way of Jesus. And so this is where the, the rebuke and the warning come in. And we'll, we'll skip over the Lord's Supper and we'll come back to that. But verses 28 to 32, there's a rebuke here and a warning for the church. Because Paul says the partaking of the Lord's Supper, it calls us to a spirit of self-examination, of honoring the Lord. Not, not to exclude us, but to prepare us to partake with the right heart. So it's not about exclusion, it's about preparation. But this isn't, 
what, what we do here when we talk about the Lord's Supper communion is we are not, it's not to be a mechanical type of exercise that we're doing. This is calling us to the way of Jesus. This is calling us to a way of life where the practice of the Lord's Supper actually makes its way into the rest of our lives. That we're doing it to foster that in our lives. It shows us how to live. And so Paul says in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So the word there for judged there, if we judged ourselves, is it also means discerned. So it's a call to evaluate carefully, to distinguish what's really going on with me. God's design for healing and wholeness is that we would be assessing ourselves. Willing to look at our thought patterns. Willing to look at our ways of living in truth. He says, if you judged, if you discerned yourself truly, if you looked at yourself, what's really going on? So this is within the context, he's saying, of the church. It's, it's a remedy, if you will, for living selfishly. Which is my inclination. It's your inclination. It comes very naturally to us to just want to live selfishly. Would you agree? It's easy. It's the easiest way. It's also... This is a call to examine ourselves, but it's also, interestingly, it's plural. It's not singular. So it's inviting others to discern how you're doing, welcoming others to speak into your life. And so the first part of the, re- the rebuke here involves the physical effects in our lives, but I wonder also, too, when he talks about some of you are weak and ill and even have died, I wonder, too, if he's we maybe take that as physical, but is it, is it even beyond that? Is, is Paul talking about emotional, psychological? Because we are not just physical beings. We are whole beings with many different components that make up who we are. And the spiritual, psychological, emotional is all absolutely integrated with the physical. That's, that's an interesting thing to ponder. I, I, you could dig deep into that. But what are the effects on us, Paul's asking, is when we refuse to discern our behavior and attitude in relation to others. What's the effect on me? How, how does it affect my wholeness and my healing? And so this judgment that we open ourselves up to from the Lord is when we're unwilling to discern ourselves and walk with vulnerability before the Lord and others. The Lord will bring correction in our lives that may be painful. Hebrews 12.6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. So it's actually God's mercy in our lives. Why? He says, So that we may not be condemned with the rest of the world. We don't want that. I, I do not want to be condemned with the rest of the world. I, that's not what I want to face. I would much rather, I want to face the rebuke and the discipline of the Lord, of a loving Heavenly Father who has His best for me, who is working all things together for my good, even the hard stuff, because He's committed to my good 
as I willingly submit myself, I want that discipline, not what the world's going to get. Romans 2.4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So I, I, I want that corrective discipline of a loving father way more than the condemnation coming in the world. Now that, that, this is a little bit touchy. Like talking about the world will be condemned, that, that doesn't fly well. Bernie Sanders, how many of you know who Bernie Sanders is? Good old Bernie. Love Bernie, lots of memes about Bernie lately. He's maybe going to be the Democratic nominee for president later this year. Um, a couple years ago, there was a Senate confirmation hearing for a guy who had just been chosen for a budget management position in the White House. So dealing with budgets and spreadsheets and numbers, okay? So he, just, he was part of looking at the books. He was, he was nominated for this, chosen, and, but you have to have a Senate confirmation hearing to, in order to be confirmed. And at one point, he had written an article at uh, defending Christian views on, when it came to Islam uh, for his Christian college, Wheaton College, he was, that was his alma mater. And he had written this, there was some stuff going on at the college, some controversy about this, statement of faith stuff, and so he wrote an article for it. Well, this got dug up in the Senate confirmation hearing. And I want to show you a video of Bernie and this guy. that has bothered me and bothered many other people. And that is in the piece that I referred to that you wrote for a publication called Resurgent. You wrote, Muslim, quote, Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned, end of quote. Do you believe, do you believe that that statement is Islamophobic? Absolutely not, Senator. I'm a Christian, and I believe in a Christian set of principles based on my faith. Uh, that post, as I stated in the questionnaire to this committee, was to defend my alma mater, Wheaton College, a Christian school that has a statement of faith that includes the centrality of Jesus Christ for salvation. And Again, I apologize. I do, forgive me. I, we just don't have a lot of time. Do you believe that people in the Muslim religion stand condemned? Is that your view? Again, Senator, I'm a Christian, and I wrote that piece. Well, what does that say? With the statement of faith of Wheaton. I understand that. I don't know how many Muslims there are in America. I really don't know. Probably a couple of million. Are you suggesting that all of those people stand condemned? What about Jews? They stand condemned too. Senator, I'm a Christian. I, I understand you are a Christian, but this country is made up of people who are not just. I understand that Christianity is the majority religion, but there are other people who have different religions in this country and around the world. In your judgment, do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? Thank you for probing on that question. As a Christian, I believe that all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that, that as a Christian, that's how I should treat 
all individuals. And do you think your statement that you put into that publication, they do not know God because they've rejected Jesus Christ the Son and they stand condemned, do you think that's respectful of other religions? Senator, I wrote a post based on being a Christian and attending a Christian school that has a statement of faith that speaks clearly with regard to the centrality of Jesus Christ in salvation. I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee um, is really not someone who is what this country is supposed to be about. I will vote no. You can Senator Gardner. You can just uh, forward. Thanks, Shana. Bernie Sanders found it beyond reason that anyone could actually believe this, what Paul says here, that people actually stand condemned. And it got me thinking, I wonder where the church stands on this. Are we questioning this as well from Scripture? Because if we begin to think, well, maybe if those who reject Christ, maybe if they won't be condemned, maybe they're good people, maybe there's just other ways to God, perhaps all this stuff isn't all that important. Maybe it's actually okay to kind of just live the way that I want. Culture says, I can do what I want, live the way that I want, say what I want, believe what I want. I've earned the right. I have the freedom. I am my own authority. That is what culture preaches. That had infiltrated the church in Corinth and was tearing it apart because it is the act, exact opposite of what it means to follow the way of Jesus. It is absolutely opposed to Jesus. It's actually the kindness of God to apprehend us and bring discipline in our lives in an attempt to wake us up. Because our inclination might be to keep stuffing it down, keep busy with all sorts of stuff because it distracts us and allows us to keep from dealing with the issues of our hearts. And so we need the, it's a wake-up call. I, I don't want to stand with the rest of the world. And that leads us, this is why Paul's, all of this is being surrounded with the good news this morning. There's a solution. There is a solution. It's God's provision for us. There, there's bad stuff that happens in the church. You know Why? Because we all have sin in our lives. And we all have an inclination to live selfishly and act selfishly. And so the warning of this reality is actually God's kindness. He's provided a solution for us. There is a solution, the sacrifice of his son Jesus. And so in, in 1 Corinthians 10, just a little bit before their previous chapter, the partaking of the Lord's Supper is first mentioned by Paul there. And it reveals that this practice 
invites us to share in a profoundly spiritual reality together. That it's not, it's not simply eating a piece of bread. It's not simply drinking a small cup of juice. It is that, but it is far much more than that. It's understanding how it invites us into the work of Jesus, how we invite the work of Jesus deep within us. This is why it's so important that when we, we talk, we talk about this and, and have, be asking questions of our kids when it comes to this, if they're going to participate. How do you understand this? John Calvin, he simply said, our soul has communion with the blood as we drink the wine with the mouth. And so, just, just to avoid any confusion too, in case, because I've been using terms, we normally refer to the Lord's Supper as communion. We don't really talk about the Lord's Supper, probably because we just don't have a full meal with it. But communion actually started with the Protestant Reformation, and it came from the Latin word for sharing in common, which actually comes from the Greek word for koinonia. So that's how, if you're wondering, how do we ever get to communion? That's, that's the trail. But central to communion is remembering Jesus. What he said of the meaning of his own death. Central to the practice of communion. Central to all of this is the death of Jesus. Proclaiming as we take communion, he died for me to take my sin, free me from the power of death, I'm receiving in this, I'm receiving Jesus as my Savior. And so I want to I pause here. And before, we're going to dig into this a little bit for the next few minutes. Dig a little bit deeper into what Paul says here about communion. But I want to invite you to come up and to grab a piece of um, matzah. We're going to have matzah, and I'll explain why we have matzah this morning. That's intentional. And grab a cup of juice. And then I want you to take, break off a piece, and then I want you to go and share Give that peace to someone who isn't your spouse. I want you to go and share with someone else and give them the cup of juice you take. Give that cup of juice to them and they can give you their cup of juice. Okay? So let's pause. Let's do that. The table's over here. You can come up as you feel led. Grab a piece. Go share it with someone else and the juice and then come back down. Don't don't partake yet. We'll, We'll work through this over the next few minutes. So, the, the first Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted was actually what? Play Bible trivia here. The Passover, Passover meal. That was no accident, as we may know. But the breaking of bread and wine was central to Passover. And it, it was a, a time of remembering, God's people remembering their deliverance from Egypt It's a reminder that we now apply to Jesus. Communion draws us back to the reminder of God's faithfulness to us and our redemption. Like the Israelites in Egypt, we were rescued. We were rescued from the toil and the and the of sin and death. And likewise, the, the elements of communion, the actual bread, the actual juice or wine, are pregnant with meaning, if you will. It, they, are, they are rich with meaning. And I, if some of you have heard this, just receive it if you've heard this before. But the bread, Jesus said that it represents his body, broken for me. 
his body broken for you. If you were the only person in the world, Jesus would have had his body broken for you. It is profoundly impacting that Jesus died to secure our freedom. And what you're holding in your hands, this matzah that we call it, is unleavened bread that is used for Passover. If you've ever been to a Seder, this is what's used as a Seder. And it has profound meaning to it. In fact, I'm gonna get a full piece because if you see a full piece, it'll, it just really drives it home. So this is the way that, that this bread has always been made by God's people. And the scorch marks on it from the process actually have the appearance of stripes. And the holes, the little holes that are poked in it during bacon, baking, sorry, not bacon, baking, there's a slip. Where's bacon? <laughs> Everything always good, goes good with bacon. Oh my goodness. We can laugh, it's okay. Oh my goodness. But the holes poked have the appearance of purest holes in the actual bread. Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6 says that, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, or in the Hebrew that also means stripes, with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And as the unleavened bread that we're going to take, don't eat it yet. Anyone eaten it yet? <laughs> don't eat it yet. Just wait. As, as, what we're going to eat, as this has no yeast in it, it also signifies how Jesus had no sin in him. And then we have the juice, the cup, if you will. Called to remember Jesus and the new covenant. And at Passover, there were several small cups of wine that were consumed as part of the, the process that went on. And the one that Jesus referred to was the cup of redemption. Jesus was announcing that his blood, the pouring out of his blood, confirmed a new covenant. It changed our relationship with God forever. It was that act that changed history. And so it puts before us the question, what, what is this new covenant that Jesus talked about? What is it all about? And I want to read a few verses in Jeremiah 31 where the prophet speaks and God is speaking through him of what he was going to do in his people. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So there's three things that we see here. I just want to quickly mention inner transformation. The new covenant is about inner transformation. Cleanses us from all sin. Our habitual sin, our iniquity is forgiven. Our sin is no longer remembered, it says. The new covenant also is about God's word and his will in us. I will put their laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. And it's also about new close relationship with God. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so communion is remembrance of Jesus' sacrificial death for us. It's the proclamation of that death until he returns again. It's a public proclamation of the saving work of Jesus on the cross. That, and what we're declaring is that nothing else saves. Nothing else in this world will save us. And true life is found in no one but Jesus. And every communion as well, so it's remembrance and it's also celebration. It's a celebration of what is to come. Revelation 19.9 talks about this beautiful picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This where Jesus is going to host this feast for his people when he returns and it is going to be glorious and wonderful. It's the, the celebrating of Jesus coming back for his bride, the church. And he's returning for her. And that, that, that picture, what we're doing, so when we do this, it is meant to build anticipation in us. There is a second coming. Jesus is returning. There is a new heavens and a new earth that is going to come. Jesus is coming. The kingdom is here, but it's going to be fully, fully realized in that day. And it's going to be amazing. And it should build such wonderful expectation, anticipation in us that this is the kingdom that we're living for. We're not living for this kingdom. We're living for the new heavens and the new earth to come. That's what followers of Jesus live for. And this, doing this reminds us, this is what's coming. This is who we are. It's profoundly, profoundly impacting. Because it's the defining event that directs our lives. I'm not living for this earth. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Like we're living for the king. This is why we do this. Communion is a practice that reminds us, yes, it's a practice, but it reminds us that our lives are to orbit around this. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and his second coming. It's the reality of our covenant relationship with God and covenant relationship with one another. Colossians speaks of being knit together. Ephesians speaks about being joined together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit.
And so this is, this is where the practice of what we're going to do here, we're, we're going to do it yet, don't worry. We're going to eat, we're going to drink the cup. It's profoundly tied, though, to public worship and fellowship. It's foundational to the way of Jesus. I wasn't sure I was going to mention this, but I feel like I maybe should have. Years ago when Alvin was in the hospital, uh, before he passed away, Len and I were there with him, and we, we took communion together with Alvin. And it was just one of those profoundly impacting special things that we'll never, ever forget as we took it with him. And, and, and the impact that it was, I, I, I saw the way that it impacted Alvin in the hospital bed. Something so, like you go, what, what, like on one level, it's just you're just eating a piece of bread and you're just drinking some juice, but it was profoundly impacting. Now, yes, it's meant to happen here. We take communion together, but I would say it's those circumstances, it's, it's both. It's both. And it, it's so rich and deep. And so as we receive this means of grace, because this is a means of grace from the Lord, it directs and defines what is central to our lives. Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus' return, and the love of Jesus directing our lives. I believe that's why Paul was putting this before the Corinthians. Is he saying, this is what's going on. This is the bad stuff that's happening in the church. This is the stuff that you're allowing to happen between you. You need to understand, Corinthians, what the Lord's Supper is all about. And you need to realign yourself to that. So, let's, let's receive the life of Jesus this morning as represented in this piece of matzah and in this cup of juice. And let's, let's partake of the life of Jesus, remembering and anticipating the return. I'll, uh, Hannah and Michaela, I'll call you, you up if you guys want to come up. And, and when the hour came, he, being Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Amen.